Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, everybody. I'm Lou Dobbs, and welcome to The Great America Show. Delighted you're with us today. And just one day after President Biden assured us ever so emphatically that we're not in recession, we find out today we're in, that's right, we're in recession. That is two consecutive quarters in which the economy has contracted. And that is the conventional definition of recession. Though the White House, of course, denies that reality, as it does most realities. For several days now, the Biden White House has been aggressively arguing that we're not in recession, that we won't be in recession. And not only that, presidential advisors have been trying to persuade the national media that the conventional definition of recession just isn't adequate for the complex times in which we live. Brian Deese is the president's go-to guy on the economy. He's the director of the National Economic Council, and he spends most of his time trying to convince the national media that he knows more about the economy than the economist. For example, last year Deese was among those insisting that inflation was transitory. He was also the one this year who basically dismissed the pain of American consumers and their families caused by runaway inflation. Deese said this about high prices for food and gas, that, quote, this is about the future of the liberal world order, and we have to stand firm, he said, end quote. The liberal world order must be the alternate reality in which the Biden folks live, not a place most of us would like to even visit. This is the Biden White House, an often confused and lost president surrounded by ineptitude and ignorance, 24-7. By the way, the head of the National Economic Council is not a professional trained economist, it turns out Brian Deese is just what Washington, D.C. needs more of. Deese is an attorney. That makes about as much sense as anything else in this Biden administration. And I've just got to say it. This White House is filled with knuckleheads and know-nothings. And they serve a president who knows less than they do. A president who is cognitively impaired and is an accident of corruption who would never have been president if it weren't for a rigged election. We've learned that there are many elements and people involved in the rigging of the 2020 presidential election. There were those who harvested ballots, ballot trafficking a big part of the 2020 election. There were big money donors who funded plots to drive dim voters to the polls in the guise of nonpartisan get-out-the-vote campaigns. There were those in authority who knew that Joe Biden lied in the second presidential debate just days before Election Day, but did nothing. And there were those in the intelligence community who signed a public letter 
claiming that Hunter Biden's laptop and its contents that implicated candidate Biden, Hunter, and his uncle James was nothing more than Russian disinformation. The signers, 51 of them, handed Biden a shield against the very truth that would have doomed his campaign. And they knew, or should have known, the truth of that laptop, because it had been in the possession of the FBI for at least 10 months before they handed the gift of their letter to Joe Biden. The letter was instrumental in wrongfully influencing the outcome of the 2020 election. Those the words of our guest today. He's attorney Tim Parlatori, who represents President Trump in requesting the intelligence agencies who employed the 51 signers to take legal action against them for violating the agency's requirement for pre-publication review and for misrepresentation that the agencies were in agreement with the signers' assessment. Welcome, Tim, to The Great America Show, and we thank you for being with us. If you will, tell us where your requests of these agencies stand right now. Sure. So where we're focusing right now is on the letter from the 51 intel officials or former intel officials where they um, they characterize the Hunter Biden laptop as Russian disinformation and really encouraged a lot of the media and everybody to ignore it. And, you know, the way that we've looked at it, that letter is in and of itself illegal. Uh, it's it's illegal under the federal elections laws, but it's also illegal under the contractual obligations that each of these 51 individuals has to their respective former agencies. When you look at this letter and, and you kind of distill it down, essentially what they're saying is we've worked intelligence for all these numbers of years. We know all this classified information about Russia. We've looked at the Hunter Biden laptop and therefore we believe based on our access to classified information, that this is Russian disinformation. Not only is their analysis false, but it's a violation of their obligations to when you make public statements that is purported to be based on classified information, that letter should have been sent to the CIA first for review and and to all of these other agencies for review so that they could have the opportunity to redact or cut pieces out. And also the CIA always adds a disclaimer on it that this has been reviewed by the CIA but does not represent the, the official position of the CIA. And in this letter, they at one point actually do say that they believe that the current intelligence community concurs with them. So that certainly they would certainly have been knocked out. Uh, but here's the other thing about that pre-publication review. It takes a little bit of time. And so to, to have done that, to have complied with their legal obligations, that letter would have been delayed probably a month or two at least, and therefore wouldn't have had the opportunity to impact the outcome of the 2020 election, which even when you set aside all of the other um, arguments related to you know fraud and the uh, um, yeah, absentee ballots and everything else, you have today uh, surveys and polls that will show that up to 15% of people would not have voted for Biden had they seen this information, had they known about this you know, significant risk. 
Yeah, and that and that information has been public for quite some time now. Uh, That the the Democratic uh, voters uh, themselves would have withheld their vote for Biden had they known about the truth of that laptop from hell. Uh, And that in itself is is absolutely critically important and, and relevant. But it's also, I think, relevant, Tim, is it not? that the agencies uh, that these people work for, including five former uh, top officials of those agencies, they knew better, or certainly should have known better. They knew they were lying because they had been in possession of that laptop. Each one of these agencies, uh, if they are intelligence agencies at all worthy of the name, had to know about the business dealings of Hunter. They had to know that, uh, for example, the Hillary Clinton campaign authored the Steele dossier and the entire Russia uh, collusion hoax. On its face, they knew that they were engaging in further uh, a a fraud against the American voting public. Absolutely, and that's what gets to the to the next complaint that we're going to file, which is with the Federal Elections Commission, because you know you have these former intelligence officers that are presenting what purports to be an intelligence analysis report uh, that they've given to this campaign, you know, for free, uh, which is something that is clearly worth a lot of money since it swing, it swung so many millions of people to, you know, to vote for somebody without knowing the truth. And that is a violation of the federal elections law too. So there's multiple, multiple legal violations that occurred here in their effort to use this information to impact the outcome of an election. Exactly what they keep accusing everybody else of doing. Exactly. And as is so often, it's become a bit of a cliche now. Democrats generally are guilty of whatever they are accusing the Republicans of. It seems to be a modus operandi. Uh, let, let's let's explore that just a bit, if we may, Tim. The sure. whether we're talking about the the, the five heads of uh, intelligence agencies or the fifty one, uh, this uh, bevy of former intelligence officers, it was it was a an obvious contrivance of the Biden campaign to provide Joe Biden a shield from not only uh, public scrutiny and uh, public speculation, if you will, about the Biden, uh, the Hunter Biden laptop and uh, the the criminality of what may be a a Biden uh, family conspiracy. We just we just have no uh, real focus here on that who started this for what reason uh, because it's not a coincidence that all of these officials of intelligence agencies decided to get together and hold forth on russian and for disinformation which even the casual reader of the news and, and consumer of news at that point had to know was pure poppycock that's correct that, that's absolutely true you know it's and yet by putting their names on this document and putting all of their you know credentials on it, it gave it an air of legitimacy that would allow news agencies to ignore it. Uh, it would allow you know members of the public to ignore it. 
and and also law enforcement agencies. Um, you know, probably to some extent. I mean, you have you know, members of the Biden campaign and even Hunter Biden himself in, in his interview saying about how these intelligence officials have determined that it was Russian disinformation. So it was definitely something that was used by the campaign. Right. And we also we also have heard, and I'm going to say it that way, this is pure hearsay, uh, certain members of the media have been told that elements of the intelligence apparatus, uh, any one of these agencies, actually contacted uh, social media, uh, some of their owners and uh, CEOs, uh, as well as news media, to specifically knock down the story with the same claim uh, that they were publishing (laughs) from these 51 uh, uh, co-signers on this letter. I, I'm not totally familiar with with all those claims. I will tell you this: the FEC co- uh, complaint that we're filing uh, that will require a an investigation into that um, type of activity by the FEC. And if within a certain period of time they do not take action, or if they dismiss our complaint under the statute, that then gives uh, President Trump the standing to file a lawsuit. Um, in the U.S. District Court against all 51 and the Biden campaign directly, so that we would be able to use uh, the you know the civil process within the U.S. District Court to get discovery and to get into all of these things. And uh, it seems to me that you've anticipated a, a, a great deal here uh, in terms of the uh, the consequences of the. Of the of the actions you're seeking uh, here from the court. The court itself is suspect now. And we, I have to tell you, I'm not about to say to the audience of this podcast that I have a great deal of confidence in the court system being impartial. We have witnessed, all of us uh, in this country have witnessed our FBI reveal itself as an arm of the Democrat, the Marxist Democrat machine. The, the deep state is precisely that. Uh, not only the FBI, the DOJ, the judiciary. You know, it, you're very familiar I'm with, with John Roberts uh, saying there are no Trump judges. There are no Bush judges. There are no Obama uh, justices and judges. You know, it's, that's pure nonsense. That's exactly what we're contending with is part, partisanship even in our judiciary system, are we not? Well, I'm I'm not going to speak bad about the judiciary. I mean, I think that um, you know it is a situation where, when you file a case, you you have the judge that you're you're dealt, and so as lawyers, you try to put together, you know, the best case that you can. Um, I mean, certainly, I've had uh, personally plenty of success in front of judges who very much disagreed uh, with the position, but if you're able to present it in in the right way. Um, you know, you, you can you can often get success, and if not, there are appellate levels to go to. So, um, you know, as far as the FBI is concerned, obviously that's a different that's a different story. You know, we had the recent uh, report about the letter from Chuck Grassley uh, about you know this uh, supervisory um, intel analyst uh, Brian Auten, who had suppressed uh, Hunter Biden information on the claim that it was Russian disinformation. Um, 
And when I, when those reports came out, when I saw the letter, you know, it, it set off some alarm bells to me because, you know, the name Brian Auden is familiar to me because he's actually one of the defendants in the lawsuit that we filed against DOJ on behalf of Carter Page. You know, he was one of the architects of the uh, of the illegal FISA surveillance of Carter Page back in 2016. Huh. So it's, you have the same the same characters. You know, four years later, still, you know, trying to put their thumb on the scale at DOJ and at the FBI uh, to pursue you know, partisan goals as opposed to pursuing justice. I believe it was an effort to overthrow the president of the United States uh, without any reservation, equivocation on my part. Uh, the evidence to me is overwhelming. Uh, it may not be the evidence that would be uh, determinate in a court of law. But common sense and just reasoning uh, leads you to only one conclusion in what was a conspiracy across uh, various agencies and departments of government and the Democrat Party uh, and, and the Hillary Clinton campaign. It's just sitting there staring at us all in, in, the, in the face. And now we have the January 6th committee doing precisely what that Marxist dim machine has been doing for six years almost. They're trying to, as you put it, put their finger on this on the scales, but they're also trying desperately to hang on to their control of both the House and the Senate in the upcoming election. Uh, if this is a difficult and and uh, you know, uh, to me, just dis- just disgusting uh, time in this country's history that we have to contend with this level of political corruption in our government and one of our political parties. Well, I mean, it's, I, I've been dealing with the January 6th committee quite a bit for a few of my clients and, you know, it is, um, it's an interesting body, shall we say it, it you know, they don't, they try to pretend that they're doing an elect, a, a, an investigation. And yet, um, all of my dealings with them have indicated that it's, it is purely about appearances. Um, it is purely about, you know, controlling the narrative and trying to, again, influence the outcome of a election through the dissemination of disinformation. And think of it this way. They subpoenaed Bernie Carrick. When they subpoenaed him, they put out a letter saying the reason we're subpoenaing him is because you know, we have received credible information that he was at this meeting on January 5th, and that that's what we want to talk to him about. Problem is, he wasn't at that meeting. And the credible information they relied upon, they actually footnoted it. They said it was in Bob Woodward's book. Unbelievable. When Bob Woodward was contacted about this, he said, I don't know where he got that from. Look at my book. Bernie Carrick's name isn't anywhere in it. So they completely made it up, but they wanted to talk to him anyway. We got, um, you know, President Trump granted Bernie Carrick a conditional privilege waiver that he would allow Bernie Carrick to answer every single question, talk about everything, on the sole condition that that interview become public, you know, whether at a public hearing or whether a taped interview that the videotape is then uh, released immediately thereafter. Benny Thompson made the conscious decision to reject the privilege waiver, to only receive part of the information because he was too afraid to allow the entire interview 
to become public. Who does that? Amazing. What, what uh, real uh, investigator does that? Uh, and and what what congressional committee uh, goes to is a, encounters executive privilege on the part of a, a former president, uh, and then follows with criminal contempt citations against one of his advisors. In this case, I'm referring to obviously Steve Bannon. Uh, that that was one of the most tortured moments I've seen in, in the course of a week uh, a, a week's trial. Uh, of a man on contempt of Congress or any other charge. Uh, your reaction to to what they did in that instance? Well, you know, one thing to remember here, I'm I am primarily a a federal criminal lawyer. You know, I'm not a even though I represent figures in politics, I'm not a political lawyer by trade. And you know, I began my career in New York City doing a lot of organized crime work. And I remember back then that there was, you know, there was a lot of case law that had developed and one of the appellate judges had even said at the time, you know, we can't create new rules just because the defendant's last name is Gotti. Okay? You know, we still have to follow the Constitution. Sure. And I see kind of the same situation here where they're trying to create new standards and new rules because of their zeal to get President Trump. And so... You know, with the way that they treat the executive privilege, a lot of these things are setting dangerous precedents that um, you know, could certainly come back to bite them. You know, should it should the same precedent be used against President Biden? You know, is this going to become the norm now for future presidents uh, that you know that the privileges are essentially going to be waived as soon as you get out of office and you know your successor doesn't like you uh, as much? You know, it's it's a very dangerous precedent to be setting here. It is. And then we have. The and, and by the way, I'd be saying yeah. the exact same thing, no matter which party is doing it. You know, these institutions, you know, there are rules and they have to be protected and you have to have a proper adversarial system. And, you know, the fact that they're doing this is is just wrong. Absolutely. And I say on this uh, on this show quite often. This isn't left and right, and it's not conservatism versus liberalism. This is right and wrong. It is good and evil. And this country is in, embattled uh, over those uh, those direct opposite poles of, of human conduct. About 40 years ago, we started watching partisanship take on mean, ugly, and direct, obvious, and flaunted uh, politics of personal destruction on the part of the Democratic Party. And by the way, I'm not saying that as a partisan. If the Republicans had done the same thing, I would be saying that of them, Tim. Oh, by the way, I've been I've been blacklisted by a Republican White House, too. So I, I mean, I have uh, I've had some uh, some claim uh, to independence uh, and impartiality. Uh, I am without a question uh, pro Trump. Uh, I am. I think he is the right man for the job without question uh in 2024 just as it was in 2016 but that has nothing to do with independent objective truth and anyone who cares about this country our traditions uh our our values our constitution uh, you talk about the judiciary system i hear you saying that with great uh great respect uh and reverence as any officer of the court should 
But what we are witnessing on the part of the, the legal profession right now, I think, is, is everlasting, uh, sh- shameful, uh, because no one is standing up and saying this from the Democratic side, the left side, saying this is not the way, this is not who we are. Stop this, Joe Biden. Stop this, Hillary Clinton. Stop this now. Well, they are blinded by the hatred that they have right now for Donald Trump. You know, I, I think about, you know, the hearing that they had a couple of weeks ago with Cassidy Hutchison. And, you know, it, again, I look at it as a criminal lawyer and I say, you know, how would DOJ have handled this or any prosecuting agency for that matter? You have a witness who comes in and tells you this absolutely fantastical story about, you know, him, you know, physically assaulting the, uh, you know, the, the Secret Service agents to try and go to the Capitol. And let me tell you how a real investigator would have handled that. What they did, they loved the story. They immediately held an emergency hearing. They put her out there and let her tell this false tale in front of millions of people. Real investigator would have said, okay, she wasn't there. She heard the story from somebody else. But guess what? We happen to have direct access to the primary sources, the people that were in the car, the person that told the story. And we've talked to them before. They're compliant. So why don't we go talk to them first to to get some corroboration of this? If assume for a second that the story was true, if it were true and if this committee was staffed by actual investigators instead of, you know, partisan um, you know, essentially election uh, strategists, what they would have done, the presentation they would have given, if it were true, they would have had her come in, they would have had her testify, they would have paused to show videos of the agents corroborating it, and then where he got into the car, there were plenty of cameras around there. The front windows are not as tinted as the back, they would have put up a dynamite video of an arm reaching up from the back seat to grab the uh, the wheel, and then it would have been lights out. But had they done any of that corroborating investigation, then they wouldn't have found that stuff, and they wouldn't have been able to put her up to begin with. And that's the difference between this committee and actual investigators. And your point. Uh, should be enough to embarrass the committee uh, and all who had any part uh, in its so-called yeah. investigation. We all know it's a disinformation campaign, uh, again, originating from the Marxist Dems who are leading the Democratic Party. Uh, for I know you're, you point out to destroy Donald Trump. They've been trying to do that for six years, and they have done nothing but shame themselves but because of the corporate media in this country, the corporate news media, uh, there is no accountability. There is no uh, no consequence to their behavior, as there would be with a truly independent, objective uh, national uh, news media. Uh, you, you talked about corroboration. There was a time in this country that journalists had to have two separate sources before a, a story would go. There was a time in this right. country where we did not use unnamed sources. We did not reference speculative uh, origins of uh, of a statement. Uh, and, and, you know, you're, or you at least gave him a great name like Deep Throat. 
so the country has to understand we're in decline. Our, our standards, our, what we tolerate, we are now in an era in a era of excessive partisanship and a deficiency of integrity that is just breathtaking. That's true. I mean, it's it's something that as a lawyer, um, you know, it bothers me because you know I I prefer to deal with the facts and the law. You know, there's there's a reason why I'm I'm not you know the so-called political lawyer. Um, you know, because I just I just want to deal with what are the facts, what what is the law, and I represent people on both sides of the aisle. You know, happily. Um, as long as there you have a case that is based on the facts and the law. And that's why, you know, if you have a system that allows for, you know, an adversarial process to present both sides of the story equally with certain guidelines and rules so that ultimately, whether it's a jury or whether it's the public, they can reach their own conclusions because they've been presented with both sides of the story to let them decide what is their um, analysis of somebody's credibility and, and which story do they believe more? Yeah. Then that's, that's where people can actually get to the truth. But when you only present one side of the story and then people get so, you know, married to the first thing that they happen to hear that anybody else that tells them something that differs from that, you know, they want to get violent with. Yeah, that's terrible. It is terrible. And I'm thinking of two two trials, Steve Bannon, uh, and uh, the only person to have a public trial coming out of the Origin investigation, the John Durham investigation, uh, in which a, two D.C. juries didn't need much fact. They didn't need any time to deliberate. They had already made their decision, and you know, and, and everyone knew darn well they'd made that decision based on partisanship purely and simply. There was no, I don't believe anyone could honestly say they were shocked or surprised by either verdict. Uh, uh, your thoughts? Uh, many times I say that a criminal case is decided by the end of jury selection, not by the end of the case. And um, if you have, if you have a good and fair jury, um, you know, then you can present your case and, and, and get a fair shake. Um and I, I remember as a young lawyer being taught that, you know, the exact same case in New York City, whether you're trying it in the Bronx or Manhattan or Staten Island, have to be three completely, totally different presentations because they're very different jury pools. Yeah. And, you know, these cases to be presented to a D.C. jury pool, that's, uh, yeah, that's <laughs> that's a tough draw. <laughs> a tough draw indeed. Uh, and it seems yeah. to be the nature of the system that that's where the draw is going to uh, to lead uh, each time in uh, these cases. Uh, I, I want to just, and I appreciate your time today, I, Merrick Garland uh, making it clear that he is uh, open to uh, charging uh, Donald Trump, even if he is a candidate for 2024, uh, the 2024 presidential election. Just the News is reporting right now that the Justice Department is investigating Trump in a January 6th criminal probe. Uh, what is your reaction to to Merrick? Well, you know, I know this is a difficult question for you to answer, but what is to stop the Republicans from saying that uh, they're open 
uh, to impeaching Biden, Kamala Harris, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, uh, if they win the majority uh, in the Senate and in the House uh, in uh, 2022. This right here is exactly why the criminal justice system should never be weaponized for any political purposes. And, you know, the I can certainly give you my legal analysis as to why I think that a, a prosecution against Donald Trump is, you know, really legally doomed to failure, um, both legally and factually. Uh, but ultimately, do you want to if you want to erode the public's confidence in the system, this is how you do it. This is how they do it in banana republics. Um, when you think about it. How upset did everybody get at the crowd shouting, lock her up? And and ultimately, when Trump took office, you know, could he have had, you know, the Justice Department go and, you know, relook at Hillary Clinton? You know, certainly Jim Comey didn't, you know, give her immunity or anything like that. But he did what most administrations do, which is to say, I'm not going to use the criminal justice system, right or wrong, to go against my political opponents. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton, in the manner in which she handled the classified material, certainly did commit a crime, in my opinion, and could have been prosecuted, but it makes sense that we didn't do that. Um, it makes sense that they didn't, you know, prosecute, you know, Richard Nixon. Um right. There are reasons why we don't want to do those things. And uh, so just from a policy perspective, um, I think this is a bad precedent to set. I do think that the, you know, the Garland memo that uh, outlines how to deal with politically sensitive entities and individuals, um, I think that the media kind of grabbed onto that as, you know, having various interpretations as it relates to Donald Trump. And really what I saw it being is more of, um, for these past two years, the U S attorney in Delaware has been left mostly un, uh, unrestrained by main justice in the investigation of Hunter Biden. And that memo, as much as it may apply to a prosecution of Donald Trump, it also asserts control over the Delaware U.S. attorney in what they can and can't do with Hunter Biden. Yeah, that's a great point, so, uh, which, frankly, I hadn't considered because I am so frustrated that the U.S. attorney in Delaware has had the the field of four years to carry out a straightforward investigation. You, as a, a uh, organized crime uh, prosecutor, uh, investigator, you know, if you if you give people four years to deal with evidence, to manufacture and construct alternative realities that they can put in front of a jury, that isn't serving justice. That's serving the defendant's interest, the criminal defendant's interest. And it makes no sense that this Justice Department has also become the go-to agency where send truth there and it will surely die. Because of the idea that there is no urgency, there is no, uh, there is no institutional 
uh, it, it seems, compunction to be efficient and effective and deal with it on, uh, efficiently. It, it just doesn't make sense what we are witnessing, whether it be in the Hunter Biden case or, or any number of others uh, where truth has gone to die. Yeah. And I will correct you on one point. I actually wasn't a prosecutor or an investigator. I was defense attorney the whole time. Okay. But, uh, I mean, but, that's, <laughs> but that's absolutely true. That, but, but, but that is absolutely true. It's, you know, it is something where, you know. You can speak better to what I just said. It is a oh, yeah. gift to the defendant and his or her attorney. <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've seen what the Justice Department can do when it's motivated. <laughs> I can definitely see what what they can do when they're motivated to do well, so. I, I, you know, I really haven't seen them motivated to do anything other than uh, uh, you know try to overthrow a president uh, and, and to conceal the truth rather than reveal it uh, and punish evildoers. Uh, and and right now, the experience of the past six years, it looks like the Justice Department and the FBI uh, ha- have more evildoers than the people they're investigating. With the fifty-one. Yeah, the the thing the thing with with that situation is that there's not really any defense because they they wrote it out. You know, they put it all on paper and they signed their names to it. So it's not. Um, yeah, I'm very confident in it because this is black letter law. They each signed a contract when they received their top secret uh, security clearances. They certainly knew about this. I mean, hell, one of the signers of that letter had previously written an op-ed discussing the pre-publication review process. And you you got one of the, uh, I believe it was Panetta, who was investigated um, and initially the IG found certain violations and then that was quietly cleaned up related to um, his, his assistance on the movie related to the bin Laden raid. Uh, you have people on the other side of it. You know, one of my clients, um, Matt Bissonette, who was, uh, who was the Navy SEAL, who was one of the three guys who walked into bin Laden's bedroom that night. They went after him, and they've completely destroyed him financially and completely wrecked his life for writing this book, and he didn't reveal any classified information. He didn't even intimate that there was any classified information in it. And yet, you know, with with these individuals, it really does come down to a matter of prosecutorial discretion where if they want you and they and they exercise the discretion to say, okay, we're going to hold this person accountable, they can and they will. Look at John Bolton. John Bolton released his book without getting pre-publication review. They brought him into court. He filed the motion to dismiss. He lost the motion to dismiss. The court said, no, you know, the, uh, the government ha- absolutely has an interest here in, in ensuring that you comply with pre-publication review. And then the administration changed. And the new DOJ leadership, who was perhaps more um, favorable to the information that John Bolton put out forgave the fact that he failed to get it properly reviewed and withdrew the case. So it really does come down to that measure of discretion. 
It, it is so, again, as you pointed when, out. But when not, but when we're doing the lawsuit, as opposed to you know the government, yeah, you know, the, through the FEC, uh, the the election law uh, context, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm very confident. Well, that that is good to hear. And what will be the consequence? What will be the punishment uh, for the these insidious acts? I mean, this is a crime against the state, as far as I'm concerned, because they changed history, and. and Without question, the consequences. I mean, the the biggest consequence that I think will come is the truth. Is that the truth will come out? Um, are any of these guys going to jail? No, they're not. Um, you know, in in my lawsuit, do I have the power to you know put them in jail or to take their security clearances or things like that? No, I don't. But you know, it is it is more monetary penalties, uh, but. The complaints that we filed with the CIA and, and the various other intelligence agencies, um, which they I have not seen whether they've taken any action on yet. Uh, I'm hoping that they will. I presume that in January, when the um, you know when the House changes hands, that there will probably be more questions uh, from the legislative branch and providing oversight to make sure that those investigations have been properly handled. Um, but those investigations can and should result in all 51 of these individuals losing their security clearances. All 51 of these individuals being prohibited from working for the government, working in any intelligence capacity. And I mean, quite frankly, here, here's the other thing. The, the pre-publication review rules as written, if enforced, would completely change a whole bunch of stuff that's going on right now. Because right now, you have a whole host on both sides of talking heads, you know, former Intel officer now you know, providing their commentary on, on events. And all of that is completely prohibited, but not enforced. And if they actually enforce all those regulations, then both CNN and Fox News will lose their ability to put former Intel officer on to comment on you know, their analysis of current events. But the viewer is not going to lose anything because they'll be able to put you know, college professors and, and other very knowledgeable people on to give the same type of commentary. But ultimately, I think it's going to trickle down to recruiting. Because what's going to happen at the recruiting level of CIA when you remove that motivation and you remove everybody from the agency whose career aspirations is to someday be involved in politics or political commentary or be a news media personality, and they're really just there to check a box in their resume. Right. When you remove that further career aspiration from them, I think that'll actually go a long way towards removing a lot of the politics and the, you know, the deep state of these people that are in these agencies with, you know, with later political ambitions and instead attract people to the intelligence community that are motivated to perform the, the work necessary to keep our country safe. Here's the thing. The Republicans count on the system. They don't abuse the system. But Your the, prosecution? 
<laughs> exactly. Uh, they may be they may be more afraid of government than the, than the Democrats, and they have every reason to be right now. But yeah. we have to have some system in which the there is a consequence for what happens. It is not enough for us to wait till there's a generation of new intelligence officers who are serving as we would expect anyone in our military to serve for the nation. Uh, and, and if we are that far astray, we desperately need consequences for those who break the rules, break the regulations, and flaunt uh, flaunt their efforts uh, to corrupt our entire federal government. Do we not? We need a major course correction on these things. We always conclude with the, our guests having the last word. Uh, and if you will, your thoughts as we wrap up. Well, you know, I, as a lawyer, I've always been a, a great fan of uh, John Adams, um, you know, one of the founding fathers who tried, you know, one of the first major murder trials in this country, the Boston Massacre. And, you know, it, it's something that he said in his closing argument that guides everything that I do in the courtroom and that I wish would guide more people in how they analyze these cases. Um, what he said to the jury at that point was, he said, facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. So I hope more people would, would, would focus on that as the theme for how they analyze things. We thank you for sharing those words, those sentiments, uh, and... Uh... And uh, they are inspiring to to even journalists in this country, I would hope. Uh, we appreciate it. Tim, thanks so much for being with us here on The Great America Show. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being with us, everybody. Our guests here next week will be Senator Marsha Blackburn, Senator Rand Paul, pollster Robert Cahaley, conservative attorney Kurt Olson, Candidate for Arizona Attorney General Abe Hamaday and Judicial Watch's Tom Fenton and Pastor Robert Jeffress. Please join us here on The Great America Show. Till then, God bless you and God bless America.